Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2199 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing our series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week two of a nine-week series titled, What Does God Want? This series reveals that God desires us to be part of His family as His image bearers. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Last week we began a new series. This series should take us close to the Easter season as far as messages go. And we'll take a break at Easter time and then probably start on a new series right after Easter. But the overall theme of this series is to answer the question, what does God want? The answer we discovered last week was that God wants you, He wants me, He wants every person that will ever live. In other words, God wanted a family. God wants co-workers. He gave us a specific task to take care of the creation that He had made. That was our, supposed to be our responsibility. God wants to know you to know who you are and why your life has value to Him. He loves you. And he also desires that you love him. Now, in last week's message, I made a point that God equipped his people to be imagers of him here on earth. That means to display God's attributes. He did this by sharing his attributes with us, his qualities and abilities. And he did this with all humans. Both in the supernatural world, we spoke about last week, where the angels, the sons of God, sang as he created the earth and the humans. So the supernatural beings in the unseen realm, which we refer to as angels, and the humans, both, are part of God's family. And we're all to be imagers of God. And as wonderful as that was, and still is, this is where things get interesting. And you might say somewhat scary. One of God's qualities is freedom. He gives us the ability to have a free will, to make choices on our own, and because the humans have this free choice, it resulted in three major rebellions. And I want to go over these rebellions today. And those three rebellions actually happened in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. From that chapter 12 on, we will see that God focuses on one particular family. So if you've ever wondered why there's evil in the world, we'll go over these in today's three rebellions. And we have a lot to cover today, so I brought this hat as a symbol to hold onto your hats. We have a lot to cover today, and we have to get through it pretty fast. It might be a little bit of a longer message than the last couple of weeks that we've had, but bear with me. I think you'll enjoy what we have to say. Some of these subjects are not without debate within Bible scholars, but after studying the Word of God and really digging into it, I think that you'll understand the concepts that I want to present. Rebellion number one. And these are all about choices, the free will that we have. Adam and Eve chose to eat. God knew what this meant when he decided to share his attributes with his children. God knows everything. So he clearly understood 
that if he gave humans and angelic creatures free will, what would happen or could possibly happen? But God made a decision early on, even with his heavenly family that he had created, they would have to have the abilities of intelligence and freedom also because God has intelligence and freedom. And if we're to be true imagers of him, we have to possess those qualities also. Those are the gifts from our creator. But he also knew sooner or later that these gifts would be misused and abused. He knew full well that though his children, both in the spiritual world and here on earth, were like him, they were not him. They were less than him. They were imperfect where he is perfect. And at some point, one or more of these children would either make a horrible mistake or act in thoughtless self-interest, rebelling against something God wanted to be done or not done. And that's precisely what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve rebelled. They violated God's command not to eat of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And as a result of they sinned, they lost eternal life in God's presence. Every human born after that point was born outside of Eden. We were not part of that Eden creation. They were born outside of Eden and estranged from God. But the Apostle Paul summed it up in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. An even earlier rebellion had actually occurred, though, before the Eden tragedy. One of God's supernatural children chose to dishonor God. His decision to have a human family was to tempt Eve. And his hope was that because Eve failed, that God would destroy Adam and Eve and do away with his earthly creatures that were in competition now with the heavenly family. If you look at your bulletin insert on the side, it says, what does God want? We went over last week, God wanted a family. And this week we can see God still wanted a family. Listen as I read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The serpent was the shrewdest of all wild animals that the Lord had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat of the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It is only the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, You must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some of it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt ashamed at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And I often wondered, it was just the two of them. Why were they ashamed of their nakedness? Well, something we miss is the Garden of Eden was a combined sanctuary for heavenly beings and earthly beings. There were still heavenly beings within that garden who had some sort of garb or clothing, and they were ashamed to be naked in front of those who were the heavenly, in the heavenly realm. The serpent came to Eve as a beautiful angelic creature. We like to think of him as a serpent, 
because that's what's translated in most of our translations. The Hebrew word for that is nakash. And it's translated serpent in English, but one of the meanings of nakash is the one who seeks to give omens and wisdom. And it also has an indication that it was a bronze, angelic look to him. And we get this sort of because God, when he cursed Satan, or the evil one, we don't really see, he was not called Satan in that phrase, that he was cursed to the ground. So we translate it to devil, but he was actually more than likely a very beautiful angelic creature that came and tempted Eve. Now the word Satan, or it's actually a title called the Satan, is a, a means, it's a title that means accuser. And to think of a prosecuting attorney in a, in a criminal trial, and this is what the Satan, the title given to this evil one, and this is the same Satan, the Satan, that was the accuser in the book of Job. It says, look at Job. You've given him so much. Just take it away, and he will curse you to your face. And by the second temple time, right before the time where God became incarnate in Christ, most of the writings of those days would interchange both the Satan and the devil and the evil one as a single being. And this is where we get the concept in the New Testament. Regardless, he succeeded in getting Eve to sin, but he failed to eliminate human, humans permanently. And this was for the evil one, strike one against his eventual downfall. Now, there are some profound truths here, the first of which is to answer the question everyone has in our minds, why is there evil in the world? All of us have asked that, I'm sure. Evil exists in the world because God decided to create beings in his own image, to be like himself, to be imagers of him. And of course, I don't mean that God has an evil side in any way. Instead, God rejected the idea of created humans as robots or some sort of pre-programmed computers in flesh. And that last point is essential. Our likeness to God had to be authentic. If we were truly made in his image as imagers of him without genuine freedom to make objective decisions, then we would not be like God. God is no robot. And if we were made to be like him, to be an imager of him, Without genuine free will, we cannot authentically love or obey God, either one. And that's what God wanted in his children, is someone who would love and obey him. Must, my watch must have picked up something I said. The result is that evil exists because people abuse God's wonderful gift of freedom and use it for our own self-gratification, revenge, and the mirage of autonomy that we might have. This abuse for humans began in Eden. But God was not taken by surprise. He had anticipated and foresaw what would happen, and he planned accordingly. This was all part of God's plan. We don't fully understand why, but he does. God did not destroy his human children for this rebellion. Instead, he would forgive them and then create a means of redemption. The Bible makes it clear that God saw what would be coming and had a plan of forgiveness and salvation in place before he created the earth and the humans. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 tells us, even before he made the world, 
God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. So God knew all along. But he had a plan of redemption, and he still wanted a human family. The plan of salvation would ultimately require that God had to become man to prove to humanity that he was God. And we'll get to that part of the story in a couple of weeks where God became man. But long before that, there was a pivotal event of Christ. There was a price that had to be paid for what happened in Eden. God banished Adam and Eve, and therefore all of their descendants from his presence. When they were in Eden, God walked with them, and he talked with them. And they were surrounded by the other supernatural angelic beings. But they were cast from the garden to be alone. God's wonderful gift of freedom was now over. We were free to choose, and we made the wrong choice. Eden was no more. Instead, eternal life with God and his family at that point, now humanity had to look forward to death. Prior to that, they would have lived forever. But that was all part of God's plan of redemption. But Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, when Adam sinned, Sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone is sinned. And that's what separation from the source of life, the very God, our creator, means. In effect, God kicked his children out of the house because they were disobedient. But that was a better outcome for, than what the evil one wanted. The evil one wanted our destruction. He didn't want any type of human competition to that spiritual realm. God also punished Satan, the evil one. Having brought death into God's world, the Satan, the evil one, became the lord of the realm of the dead, in which will later be referred to as hell, because God had no backup plan. And you might wonder at this point, why didn't God just scrap his plans about having a human family? After all, God allowed free will, knowing that it would lead to sin for thousands of years, and human misery would be in the form of violence, neglect, selfishness, and a host of other horrible things that were capable of afflicting on one another. Perhaps someone you know, or maybe yourself, are suffering, or you see suffering all around you, and you might even wish, well, why hadn't God just destroyed everything at that point? But believe it or not, God understands that feeling. He sees the evil that you see in so much infinitely more. None of this was the way God wanted things. But you say, he's God. Can't he just overrule it all? And that comes to our mind, but it's not quite that simple. Think about it. God can only eliminate evil from the world if he eliminates all who commit evil. And that would be every one of us. So in order to have a human family, he allowed the plan of redemption. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, we all fall short of God's glorious standards. So sure, God could have eliminated humanity at that time, but he doesn't. He loves us too much. He loves the human family too much for that to even be an option. It all boils down to an amazing truth. While God knew that making us like him and what it would lead to, the result of the humans falling was so much more preferable to him than not having a fam human family at all. God sees the sin and the misery in our world and knows its cause. It hurts him, but God is so consumed with love 
for his human children, for each one of us, that he will not turn away from his original ambition and plan. There was no plan B. There was only plan A. And God chose to work out a plan through plan A for his eventual outcome. And despite foreseeing the rebellion that would come on Eden and all the failures in the world that would follow, including our own failures, God still longed to have a human family. What happened to Eden was only the beginning of the story, though. God had kicked Adam and Eve out of the house. He cursed the serpent, the evil one, in Genesis 3, 14 and 15. He cast him away from his presence in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And the message is forceful and simple. Rebellion would be punished. And you think of everyone at that point would have gotten the message, including the evil one. But not so. It gets even worse. We go on to rebellion number two. The sons of God chose women. You may have heard somewhere along the way that the Bible teaches that the world is, has so much evil in it because of humanity's fall in the Garden of Eden. But unfortunately, that's only part of it. After the tragedy of Eden, and we have two more episodes, we're plunged humanity further into the depths of depravity and chaos. The first of these are described in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And this is arguably one of the most stranger passages in Scripture. But we should not shy away from those problematic passages in God's Word. And I've heard a lot of different explanations for it. That we, but we should consider the whole counsel of God when we are looking at God's Word. Let me read this passage. Then the people began to multiply on the earth, and the daughters were born to them. The sons of God, and this sons of God in Hebrew is the same sons of God it refers to in Job that we read about last week that sang when all of creation was, was made. It says, these sons of God saw the beautiful women, and they took any of them they wanted as their wives. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. In those days, and after some time, and sometime after, giant Nephilims lived on the earth, for whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. Now, the Greek and the Roman gods, Zeus and the pantheons of gods, have said, tradition holds that Biblical tradition holds, at least, that they came from these stories of the Nephilims. And I've studied this in depth, and I've taken a couple of seminary courses on this passage, and I've looked at other parts that we'll cover in our story as we review the entire story of God in these few short messages. And the story is about how some of God's supernatural children, referred to as the sons of God, in the same Hebrew passage I said that was in Job last week, same, same Hebrew words. They wanted to imitate God by producing their own human children in their image instead of the image of God. For that purpose, they decided that human women, some of the translations called them the daughters of humans or the daughters of mine, in their minds they made, wanted to be rivals to God, their own heavenly father. And rather than be happy with God's desire to have the human family become part of this larger family with supernatural and human members. They decided they wanted to be overlords of their own humans. 
But that wasn't what God had in mind. God wanted a family, not an enslaved people. And we read more about these angels who left their proper domain in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and Jude, verse 6. It tells us the result of the actions of these angels who sinned at that point. Let me read both of them. 2 Peter first. For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness, where they were being held until the day of judgment. And God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and seven other, others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. And then Jude, verse 6. And I remind you of these angels who did not stay within the limits of their authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness waiting for that great day of judgment. And that great day of judgment will be after Christ returns and establishes rule and reign in a global Eden. And it said believers will judge the angels. And that's what it's referring to, these angels being judged at that point. And but the deed at this point was done. And it was a disastrous consequence. So look at the two verses in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6 that followed the earlier verses I read. It says, The Lord saw how great the weakness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of their thoughts and of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he, re he made human beings on earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Think about it. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was evil all the time. It says God regretted that he made humanity. He didn't want to go back on that, but he regretted that they turned out like they did, and he it grieved them. And this is the very definition that depravity and sorrow brings. The first supernatural rebellion led to a human losing their eternal life or their eternal presence with God, which was bad enough. But this rebellion of these sons of God takes that sin to, to another level, accelerating human self-destruction to where it became so evil that there was evil thoughts all the time. God felt so deep in remorse the way things turned out. Humanity at this point had been permanently damaged. And the Bible tells us that God could see no other solution than to send a flood to wipe out all of humanity, Genesis 6:17. And it's essential to notice that the flood story never indicates that God was angry. You say, well, God was mad. No. He was grieved that the humans in the, spiritual, in the spiritual realm have chosen against what he wanted. It only says that he was heart-stricken over what was going on. God had decided to give humans freedom. He couldn't take it away because he decided if they wanted to be made in his image, they would also have to have free choice. They'd no longer be genuinely human if he took that choice away. The only choice was to start over and to end what the rebellious sons of God had caused, because God still wanted a family. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. And that's why God, there was one person left on earth, was Noah, that still served and honored him. 
So he set Noah aside, and he's told God, Noah to build an ark, which is a large ship, so that he and his family and multitudes of animals would survive. But God still held out hope, even as deep as depravity to become, that as human children, those that Noah could speak to might turn back to him. So he mercifully gave Noah 120 years to prepare for the flood, to tell people what would happen as a if they could turn from their depravity and be forgiven. But in the end, no one listened. It was Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives. That was all who believed. They refused God's gracious warning. And once again, the children turned their backs on him, as we're all free to do on a daily basis. Is it any wonder that God's heart was broken here? At least there was Noah and his family, because if God has one righteous person, he can work miracles. He can work through that one righteous person. After the flood, God repeated his original command that he had given to Adam and Eve. What were they to do? In Genesis 9-1, speaking to Noah, he says, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the entire earth. Fill all of my creation with your offspring. God was starting over with them. He made a covenant, the very first covenant or promise in the Bible was to Noah and extended to all humankind. The covenant is a promise or a pledge, and we think of it as like a legal contract that we have today, but this contract was one-sided. It was all about God's promise to humankind, to all humanity, that he would never destroy the entire world again through a flood. And the sign was a beautiful rainbow. That was a sign of his covenant. Amazingly, God still wanted a human family after all this. But not amazingly, and still pretty incredible, is the abuse of God's goodness would continue after Noah. A third rebellion followed the flood. And that rebellion, number three, is humanity chose to build. Like the stories of Adam and Eve and Noah in the flood, you may have heard about the Tower of Babel. And if not, that's okay, because most of us who have grown up in church don't fully understand what the Tower of Babel represented in the dividing of the nations. And the story of the Tower of Babel is, is found in Genesis chapter 11, 1 through 9, and I'd encourage you to read it on your own. But after the flood, God wanted Noah's descendants to multiply and spread out through the entire world. But what did they do? Because he wanted them to be like Adam and Eve. They were to be God's co-workers to maintain all of creation, to maintain the earth, to maintain the animals, to maintain the birds of the sky and the fish in the sea. That was their responsibility. But instead of doing that, they gathered in one place called Babel and built a tower to their own glory to reach the skies. But there's a familiar, that's a familiar part of the story that we probably all know. But the real significance is found in a couple un familiar verses to us, tying it back to the Tower of Babel, which is Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9. So listen as I read this. When the Most High assigned the lands to the nations, when he divided up the human race, he established the boundaries of the people according to the numbers in his heavenly court. In some translations, according to the number of the God, sons of God. And as you read and study in depth, there were 70 nations split up. 
And the listing of those 70 nations that were split up at that point, and just give you a preview of what's to come, at Pentecost, it lists the same 70 nations as coming back under Christ. In verse 9 of Deuteronomy 32, it says, For the people of Israel belong to the Lord. Jacob is his special possession. Now, these two verses tells us of one judgment at the Tower of Babel, and it was the division of humankind. Most of us understand that we're divided, segregated by language and geography. But most of us didn't realize that prior to this, God dealt with humanity as a whole. There was no divisions. They all spoke the same language. They all understood each other. But even worse than them building this tower to the sky, at this point, God says, I've had enough. I'm divorcing myself from humanity. I'm fed up with the human defiance of his will, and God assigned the nations of the earth to members of his supernatural family, to the sons of God. Same words that was in Job, same words that was in earlier in Genesis. This was a different group than those who had transgressed their domain in Genesis chapter 6 because at that point God destined them to judgment in chains of darkness and they'll be judged at the end of days. This was a different group, but God couldn't kick out humanity out of the house anymore. He had already done that in the Garden of Eden. He promised not to destroy humanity with a flood again, so he couldn't do that. So what else could he do? He essentially said, I have enough. If you don't want me to be your God, I will assign you to my heavenly assistance. And the fallout of the judgment took many forms. And we're not told how long it took from Noah to Babel and from Babel to when God chose a single family once again. It could have been hundreds of years, thousands of years. But the Bible tells us that the supernatural God, sons of God, that were assigned over these nations, eventually did a lousy job. They became so corrupt that God had to judge them also. He would one, take, one day take away their immortality and take back the nations. And he takes back the nations at Pentecost. But there's a psalm, Psalm 82, that tells us of God judging these angels. And this is called the Psalm of Asaph. This first verse is Asaph was speaking. It says, God presides over heaven's court. He pronounced judgment on the heavenly beings, or in some translation, among the gods, he says. And then God speaking in verses two on, how long will you hand down unjust decisions by favoring the wicked? And he's speaking of these rulers over these nations. Give justice to the poor and the orphans. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and the helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. But those oppressors know nothing. They are so ignorant. They wander about in darkness while the whole world is shaken to its core. I say, you are gods. You are all children of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals and fall like every other ruler. And then Asaph picks back up in the last verse. Verse 8, rise up, O God, and judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. Now, for our purposes here, God's frustration left him childless regarding his human family. 
You might say that he was really ready to give up. Well, not quite yet. God's persistent love, because you know what happened right after Babel in Genesis chapter 12? God appeared to Abraham, originally called Abram. He was an older man married to an older woman named Sarah, who was well beyond her years of having children. But God made a covenant with Abraham, the second covenant in the Bible. He promised that older man and his wife that they would have a son. God would do a miracle. Their son would be the beginning of his new family for God on earth, his chosen people, having allotted humanity to the oversight of the other members of his heavenly host, God wanted to begin anew with a single family of his own through Abraham. Abraham believed God's promises. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says, And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. And this, that phrase, the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith, is repeated six times in the New Testament. Talking about Abraham. He didn't have to earn God's interest or favor. It was that God had chosen Abraham to start all over again with his human family. The relationship between God and Abraham started with God. But Abraham believed. And it was counted to him or credited to him. It's like you have a debt and God pays that debt. Afterward, the covenant relationship that began with God's call and Abraham's faith was commemorative, and that sign was a physical sign of circumcision. And you might think, Man, that's an odd covenant, the covenant sign of circumcision. But follow along. As Abraham's entire family followed this example, bearing the sign marked the descendants of the people of Abraham, the children of Abraham, who eventually became the nation of Israel. God wanted his family. Circumcision was also a sign to the women of Israel, because every time that they had intercourse, the women also would know that they were marked with an outward sign of an inward change in their lives, that they were a special people that God miraculously brought a son to Abraham and Sarah when it was beyond their time to have children, because Abraham believed. It's important to realize that the covenant with Abraham was based on belief in God's promises. We would call that faith today. God didn't approach Abraham because he found a man who was a good rule keeper, because he knew Abraham would believe. Salvation is not based on our behavior. We cannot earn our salvation. If that were the case, God would be in debt to us by virtue of our performance, of us being good. He'd owe us something in response to our achievements. And think how absurd that sounds, that God would be indebted to us. Instead, Abraham and his descendants showed that they believe God's promises by observing the covenant sign of circumcision. It was an outward sign of an inward change, an inward belief. That's what baptism is to us today. It's an outward sign of an inward change. And that's why we have the baptisms in the church today. Now, the Apostle Paul used Abraham as an example of believing loyalty. In Romans chapter 4, it talks about all about Abraham's believing loyalty. Abraham believed and accepted God before the sign of circumcision, before he obeyed God's rules. The rules were to show that he believed. 
They did not replace his belief. Belief or faith is one is one in the essential thing. Loyalty to the belief that God is something that comes later. Today we call it discipleship. Belief and loyalty are two distinct things, and yet they are related, but they're not interchangeable. The same is true of our salvation and then discipleship. We're saved, and then we are to become disciples of Christ, to teach others of Christ and his kingdom. Promising Abraham a son, and through him, the start of a new family that would grow into a great nation. And that was God's second covenant after the disaster in Eden. His first was with Noah. Both were designed to preserve the dream of having a human family. But these covenants weren't just about God not giving up. They were also extending the offering of everlasting life, not just to the nation of Israel, but to all people. God had not given up on humanity. He couldn't stop loving people. God still wanted a human family. God kept his promise to Abraham. He and Sarah did, not, did indeed have a son, Isaac. And Abraham's extended family would become known as Israel, the nation of Israel, the chosen people, one that were set apart for God. And the name most frequently used in the Old Testament for God's human family. But what about the people on the other, of the other nations? Were they just plumb out of luck? No. God had assigned those to the other nations at the Tower of Babel Rebellion. They were called Gentiles. And we think of Gentiles, at least I've had in my mind, as somebody that were not believers in God. But the, the word Gentile means not from Israel. And despite what happened at Babel, God did not forget those of the other nations. Now, God would start over yet again with the nation of Israel. But he told Abraham and his descendants that someday they would be a blessing to all the other nations that God had forsaken. Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All families on the earth will be blessed through you. Now, many years later, Jesus, who came from the family of Abraham, would be that particular descendant which would bring all nations together once again. And that happened at Pentecost, where the disciples of the day, the apostles, were preaching, and everyone heard them in their own tongue. Those 70 nations came back again under Jesus Christ at Pentecost. And before Jesus arrived on the scene, Gentiles still could join the family of Israel, and they did so by rejecting all the other gods, believing in him as the one true God, and then taking on the sign of God's covenant, the circumcision, they could join the family of God's chosen people. Now, a lot of time had passed between Abraham and Jesus. Israel's story in Deuteronomy chapter 32.9 was the Lord's portion, and it wasn't always a pretty one. They were God's people, but sadly, but perhaps predictably, at times their loyalty fell, failed, and sometimes of the darkest hours were still yet to come. And I know we've covered a lot of information today. Some of it might be a little new to you, some of the concepts. But after studying God's word and tying it back together with the scriptures, it makes the most sense of God, why God wanted the family. By tying these three rebellions, Garden of Eden, the sons of God, and the Tower of Babel, 
just in the first 11 chapters. And everything after that, from that point forward, was focused on a single nation, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. He wanted to establish a covenant with that single family group. And next week, we'll explore the remainder of the Old Testament, from the calling of Abraham through Micah, and a single message. Obviously, we're only going to hit the highlights of that. What does God want? Well, next week, we'll see that God was betrayed by his family. So I'd encourage you to read Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, Genesis 15, verse 3, and Genesis 17, verses 8, 1 through 8, in preparation for next week's message, as we cover the story of Israel to the time of Christ. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for the story you've given us, the story of your love and desire for us, that you loved us so much, and yet you gave us the free will to choose to love you or not to love you, to choose to be obedient to you or not to be obedient to you. And we thank you for that choice, Father. May our love for you be an image and a replication of your love for us and our love for each other might show forth the, your love to us, Father. As we look at these, message, these passages, help us to understand your word more fully. Help us to live for you each day more fully, Father, that we might, in our lives, be an imager of you to show forth your kingdom, to tell others of Jesus Christ the only way. Back to you, Father. We thank you for the plan that you set in motion even clear back before the Garden of Eden, before your creation, this plan was set in motion, and we give you thanks. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together... Let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.